Bible, go ahead and grab it. We're going to be in Ezra, the book of Ezra this morning. So grab that Bible, open up there. Um, you know, over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about how do we cultivate a life with God, right? At the end of the day, what you and I need most uh, is to cultivate a life with God, is to walk with the Lord. We need Him more than we need anything else, right? And if maybe you're new to this whole Christian thing, or maybe you're not a Christian and you're in this room, listen, I'm telling you, the world's going to tell you that you need a lot of different things. Culture will tell you you need a lot of different things. Um, but I'm going to tell you that uh, the truth of the matter is, is that you need Jesus more than you need anything else. Um, this Bible, while it may be a historic book for some, maybe people think, well, golly, I can't believe that they open up and actually trust this thing, but 2,000 years, this thing has not been proven untrue. And so we stand on that and we believe it. And this is what the word of the Lord says. It says that you need God more than you need anything else. And so that's what we're studying is how do we do that? How do we cultivate a life with God? In order to do that, God has to be the priority. Um, Maybe some of you have been struggling like I have is kind of wrestling through, God, are you a priority in my life or are you the priority in my life? Right, God demands that he is the priority. It's not a suggestion, right? There's nowhere in the Bible that you will find where God suggests that he should be the priority in your life. In fact, he he didn't suggest that at all. He says, hey, if you're gonna follow me, if you've given your heart to me, then I want it all. He wants all of you. He wants all of your heart. One pastor I heard talking about this this week, he said, said, God doesn't wanna be a, a a priority on your your list of priorities, but rather he wants to be the entire sheet of paper that you've written your priorities on. So you think about that, right? He doesn't want to be a bullet point on your checklist, right? He wants to be the entire sheet of paper in which you've written your priorities on. He wants to be the priority in your life. And I think if we're honest, you know, even even the the most well-meaning Christians struggle with this. Don't we? It's okay. We can be honest, right? We find ourselves kind of teetering and tottering on this line of God's a priority versus the priority. You know, and it, good news for us is that since the dawn of creation, God's people have struggled with that. So it's nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun, right? There's nothing new that you were experiencing that ancient Israel, God's people, didn't experience as well, right? They struggled with this idea of teetering back and forth on, you know, sometimes God is the priority, other times he is a priority, if anything at all. In fact, in the book of Ezra, you're going to see this kind of play itself out, right? God's people have been through some serious stuff, right? They've experienced major highs, major lows. God has rescued them from Egypt into slavery. He's split the waters. They've walked through. God's done incredible things for the people of Israel. They've experienced highs and lows. You know, anytime they experienced a low, it's almost canny how it works out, right? They experience a low in their life and they begin to run to God. And all of a sudden he is the priority in their life. And then all of a sudden, things go well. You know this to be true in your life as well, right? Things go well, and what happens? God kind of drifts back to the shadows and becomes a priority. So it's in the valleys where it's all of a sudden God becomes the priority because you know why? He has to because it's outside of your control. All my control freaks in the room are, that's not me, (laughs) right? But it's in the valley where you're like, you throw up your hands because you're like, man, I, I got nothing left. 
And so we have to rely on God. There's a need, and so we lean into him. But then we start walking up the mountaintop, and God comes in. He rescues us. He starts taking us up that mountaintop, and we start celebrating God's faithfulness to come into the valley to rescue us. And as we're walking up to the peak, guess what we do? Our celebration of God's faithfulness gives way to our own confidence. And again, slowly and surely, God makes his way into the shadows, into a bullet point in our life rather than the whole sheet of paper. This is the story of Israel. Sure, we know that God is still there, but we don't have to reach for him because if we're honest, when things are good, they're in our control and we can handle it until we can't. And you know this to be true, right? Life is like this, right? If you're, if you're not struggling right now, you're heading to that point. If you're struggling, you're heading out of that point, right? Life is a series of peaks and valleys and the process in between. And yet God is faithful in every bit of it. Now, what's wild is that when we find ourselves on the mountain peak, We've got life, we can grip it, like the, you know, grab the bull by the horns kind of thing. I'm in control of my life. God works his way into the shadows. He becomes that bullet point. You know, it's funny, I was thinking about it in my own life. I was like, you know, that didn't just happen overnight. Very rarely does that happen overnight. I was thinking about Eve. You know, she's sitting there in the garden. You know, it's not like Eve woke up one day and said, today's the day where I'm gonna take a bite out of that apple and I'm gonna ruin it for everybody. Right, she didn't just think, oh man, today's the day where I'm gonna go to the forbidden tree, I'm gonna grab that fruit, and I'm gonna take a bite out of that fruit, and today's the day I'm gonna ruin it for everybody. No, it's a slow fade, right? Casting crowns got it right. Right, there's this slow fade in your life where again, God just drifts to the shadows. And so the calling that I want you to see this morning is God's desire is not that he would be a shadow in your life, but he'd be on the forefront of your life. He would not just be a bullet point on the sheet of paper, but he would be the entire sheet of paper. So, what do we do when we find ourselves in that place where God is not the sheet, but rather he's the bullet point? Well, Israel has found themselves in that particular point. You know, it's funny, God, by his grace, allows some major events to come into Israel's life to turn them back to him. Why does God do that? Because he's mean? No. Because he loves them. He allows some, a series of events to enter into their story that would push them into the valley so that in that valley they would reach up to him and find him to be faithful. This is, again, the story of Israel. And yet, and yet in this place that we're going to read this morning, Israel finds themselves in a very, very troubled place. Here's the place that they find themselves God has given them up over to their own priorities. And I want you to hear me very clearly this morning. By God's grace, in his love, he's gonna give you over to your priorities. He's gonna give you over to your priorities. If he is not the priority, remember, he wants what's best for you. And what's best for you in your life this morning, right now in 2023, is that he is the priority in your life. And so if he is not the priority, it is by his grace, his mercy, and his love to give you up to your priorities so that you will run them to to their end and find him to be enough. More than your comfort, 
right? More than prosperity, more than health, more than anything else, he's going to push you to that point where you go, oh, okay, God, I need you. You need to be the priority in my life. That's what happens to Israel. In Second Chronicles 36, right? If you're at Ezra, just look over at the page behind you. Second Chronicles 36, 17 tells what has happened to Israel. Remember, they have shifted their priority away from God. He is now just a priority, if anything at all. And so here's what happens. It says, therefore, God brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on their young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into the king's hand and all of the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and his princes, all of these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. This is not a theory. This is not some story that's out there. This is historically true. And 587 BC, the Babylonian empire sweeps through Israel and the Babylonian Empire takes Israel into captivity. Now, rewind back to the wilderness years. God has rescued the people of God out of Egypt, taken them into the wilderness, all for the purpose that they would see that they need God more than anything else, more than freedom, more than food, more than comfort, more than shelter, more than air, more than the basic needs that you and I need to survive. God takes them into the wilderness to show them that more than any of that, they need Him. That's what God does. And what do they do? They plead and ask God to take them back to slavery in Egypt. God moved them to a place where he would be the priority in their life. And rather than taking a hold of that, they demanded to go back to slavery. And so here in this story, God has given them up to their priorities. He's moved them back into slavery underneath a foreign king who has little or no regard for God or his people. The walls of Jerusalem are destroyed. The temple where God's presence once lived among them now in ruins. Again, this is a brutal narrative of what happens when a people refuse to make God the priority of their lives. Ruins. It is by God's grace. It's by His love. By His mercy that he would push us into a place where we experience ruin so that he can rebuild us into him. That's what's happening to Israel. But I want you to hear me very clearly because this is important. While God has given them over to their own ruin, to their own priorities, he's not done with them. In the book of Ezra, God does what only he can do. He begins to work in Cyrus, the king of Persia, in his first year as king, Ezra writes, in order that the word of the Lord might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom. Now keep in mind, this is God's enemy. 
This is his enemy. This is not a friend. This is not a, this is not a foe. This is his enemy. God stirs up his heart, and here's the declaration that Cyrus, the king of Persia, makes to the people. He publicly declares, he says, that the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all of his people, may God, may his God be with him, and let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel." This is God's enemy speaking. The very one and whose predecessor came into Judah, killed God's people, took the rest of them into exile, burned the walls of Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. God has now come into his life, stirred up his heart, all for his will and his glory. The one who's the most powerful man in the land, God is now working in him like a puppet to accomplish his will. Think about that. God's enemy. God works even through his enemy. He works him over like a puppet, all to accomplish his will. But it gets even better. Not only is God working in Cyrus to rebuild his home in Jerusalem, but he is also returning all of the gold, the jewels, and the treasure that Babylon, the, the Babylonian army stole out of the temple when they raided it. When they raided the temple, they took all of the treasure, all of the gold, all of us, all of it, took all of it out, and they took it with them to Babylon. And now Cyrus the king says, hey, and when y'all are finished rebuilding this thing, I want you to take all that we stole, and I want you to put it all back. But it even gets better. It even gets better. Not only does he, he, he help send a group back to rebuild the temple, not only does he refill the temple, but he says, oh, and by the way, I'm going to pay for it. He pays for the whole construction. Listen to me, only God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, can build his temple, restore his people, renew his covenant with his, his people on the enemy's dime. You should think about that. That's the God in whom we're here to worship this morning. We're not here to worship this God who deserves a bullet point on our priority list. We're here to worship the God who can do all things, even through his own enemies. The God who's in control of everything. That's who we're here to worship this morning. The story continues as the people arrive in Jerusalem. They begin construction. Great things are happening. And anytime great things are happening for God, guess what? Opposition rises. And so it does. Opposition rises. Satan's not going to let it be easy. We know that. That's true of history. Opposition arises, causes work to stop. Significant amount of time passes. Cyrus dies. A new king, Darius, comes to power. King Darius sitting on his throne now. Here's word that Cyrus had made this commitment to the people of God that he's going to rebuild the, the, the temple. So Darius goes back to the king's you know, file room, opens up the file, reads it, goes, wow, we have made that commitment for whatever reason. He decides, well, I guess I'm going to fulfill that commitment. So he does. And then Ezra records the events in chapter 6, verse 13. Here's what he says. It says, then according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bazanai, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. 
And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet of Zechariah, the son of Edo. They finished their building by the decree of God of Israel and by the decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. And hear this, the house was finished on the third day on the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. So God shows up. In like fashion, the people are in the midst of exile. Everything in their world has been destroyed. They have been moved from life in Jerusalem into Babylonian empire where they're serving in captivity. They're serving a foreign king who has little desire or care for the Lord. God enters into him, does a work there, sends them back, pays for the temple, restores all of it. The people are on a mountaintop of experience. Highs, lows, they're sitting on the mountaintop, and here's where they find themselves. Ezra, raised up, sent from Babylon to the people of God, which, by the way, is another kind of crazy story, right? They've got everything that they need. The only thing that they don't have at this point is a man of God to come and and minister to them and teach his word. And so God puts Darius into his heart to send to, to, to send Ezra to uh, Judah where he's going to minister to the people. And so, man, you have this, again, another work of the Lord. Um, and and on, that, on that journey, Ezra, that's a 500-mile journey, by the way, right? So, so, so Darius comes to Ezra and he's like, hey, listen, I'm going to pay for you to get there. Right? He's already paid for the construction of the temple. Temple's finished. Now he's paying for Ezra to get back there and all of his team, right? He's paying for all of that kind of stuff. And then he says, hey, is there anything else that you need? Does he need a protection detail? And here's what Ezra says in chapter, 20, or in chapter 8, verse 22. He says, no, I'm good. The hand of the Lord is for good on all those who seek him. And the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. Again, it's a pretty strange way for Ezra just to say, hey, man, you know what? I'm good. The Lord's got my back. I don't need you. I got it, right? And so he's on his way. Now he gets to Jerusalem, he sees that the temple is done, the people are celebrating, they're on a mountain high kind of experience, and here's what Ezra leads the people to do. In verse 21, chapter 8, he proclaims a fast. Here's what Ezra says, chapter 8, verse 21. He says, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on our way, since we had told the king that the hand of our God is for good on all those who seek him, and the power of his wrath against all who forsake him. So, the result is, we fasted and we implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. You know, Ezra shows up to Jerusalem, and the first act that Ezra leads the people to do is fast. It's a pretty strange thing, right? Why in the world would he do that? I'll tell you why. Because Ezra wanted to push against the narrative, the historical narrative, that instead of making God a priority, he wanted to push God into the center of Israel's life, that, they would be, that God would be the priority for their journey ahead. Listen, I don't know if you knew this or not, but the Christian life is a journey, like it is, it is a journey. It's a journey of ups and downs, twists and turns. It's filled with defeats, victories, right? And the story of Ezra teaches us that if, we want to, that if we want to make God the priority, we need to go to great lengths 
great lengths to seek Him out in this particular journey. And one way that we can do that is through a thing called fasting. It's through fasting. Ezra leads God's people to fast from their own self-reliance and the reliance of their king and to dependence on God. If you want God to be the center of your life, if you want him to be the priority in your life, then it is going to take us making a decision to say, God, I'm going to do what I need to do to seek you out. And I'm going to work hard to seek you out. And one way that I can seek you out is to fast. Now, in this particular case, Ezra leads them to fast for three particular reasons. The first one is this. They fasted to humble themselves before the Lord. They fasted to humble themselves before the Lord. Listen, we don't, we don't fast because it's fun, right? Like, I don't know that I've ever had a time where I have fasted to seek out the Lord's presence because, man, it, this seems like a fun thing to do or an easy thing to do, right? No, we fast because when we do, we're declaring to God that we need Him more than anything else. That's what we're doing. We're humbling ourselves before the Lord and saying, God, I need you more than I need anything else. And I think oftentimes fasting gets a bad rap, right? You know, you, maybe you think of a monk sitting in a monastery fasting for hours on end or those super spiritual or self-righteous people who talk about fasting and, and all of those things. But yet, for the people of God who make him the priority in their life, Fasting is not a supernatural thing, but it's a regular part of our diet. When God is the priority, it becomes a regular part of our diet. It's a regular part of our life because we need Him more than we need food, water, air, shelter, clothing, or anything else. And so we're going to put ourselves in a space where we need God, where we need Him to show up, and we're going to plead with Him and seek Him out and ask Him to meet us in our time of need. That's why we fast. It's not because it's fun. It's not because it seems like it's a great idea. It's because we need God. And so we set apart time for him. We prioritize him. And we ask him to satisfy our appetite. Or maybe we ask him to give us an appetite for him. Number two, they fasted for belief in God's promises. You know, when the king offered to provide a protection detail for Ezra and his people, Ezra said, no, man, I don't need that. I got God. He's got my back. As a matter of fact, his hand is on those who seek him, and his hand is on those for wrath against those who do not seek him. He said, I'm good. I, I, don't, I don't need your protection detail. I got God. But while I think that Ezra believed that to be true in his mind, his heart needed to catch up to the truth that he proclaimed. You ever done that before? where you've proclaimed a truth of God, but maybe you believe it up here, but, but for whatever reason, you hadn't caught up to your heart yet. Ezra needed the people of God to not only believe it up here, but to believe it here. Right? We fast so that our intellectual knowledge of God, our belief in His promise, and our heart would align together we fast in order to believe the promises that we claim to be true. That's why he said, for I was ashamed to ask for anything else since I made such a bold declaration. In the moment of doubt, Ezra led himself 
and his people to fast for belief in God's promise to go with them and to protect them on the journey. Again, we remind our hearts of God's promise to go with us, to protect us, and to get us safely at home. That's why we fast. Number three. Number three, the people fasted to seek God's favor and protection for the journey ahead. That's the third reason why they fasted. You know, I mentioned this a minute ago, but the Christian life is a journey. It's not a destination. It's not a destination. Sometimes I think in Christian circles, we can live as though salvation is the destination. Just get them saved. But hear me very clearly, that's not biblical. That's not biblical. Salvation is the beginning of our destination of eternity with the Lord Jesus. Salvation is the beginning of a long journey, a life journey to a destination where you and I will spend all of eternity with our King. And so the journey in between, we don't live it for the here and now, we live it for the destination. We live with the destination mindset. We don't live with the present mindset. We live with the destination mindset, knowing that that God is preparing us now for the destination that we will experience on the other side of eternity. And so we fast in order for that destination. We fast to say, come Lord Jesus. We fast to say, Lord, I wanna be prepared. I wanna be ready for my destination with you. It's to put ourselves in a position of need of want for him, to make him the priority in this life that's a journey. This life, it's a journey with twists and turns, bumps and bruises, good decisions, bad decisions, victories, defeats, and so when we fast, we're placing ourselves underneath the care and the favor of the Lord who says, hey, I'm with you in the journey, I'm gonna get you to your eternal destination. There's nothing else on this earth that's gonna get you to your eternal destination. There's not an amount of money that you can earn. There's not an amount of favor that you can earn. There's not an amount of success that you can achieve. There's no house that's big enough that's going to get you there. And when those are our priorities, hear me very clearly, when those are our priorities, God is going to, in his grace, going to give you up to those priorities. I mean, what are you going to do? Walk into eternity and say, Lord, look at this awesome house I built. Lord, But have you seen it? My kids made it to college and they got the scholarship. Man, look at this career that I've built. Look at all the money in my bank account. Did you know that none of that, you you can't take any of it with you? See, there's a day where you and I will all stand before the Lord and it's the great equalizer because it doesn't matter how pretty you are. It doesn't matter what clothes you have on your back. It doesn't matter how much money you made. Doesn't matter how big your house is or how sweet your cards are or how good looking the girl is on your arm. We will all stand before the Lord and we will give an account with what he, for what he has given to us. And it's gonna be on that day where he's gonna say, hey, was I the sheet of paper or was I just a bullet point in your life? How are you gonna answer that question? Like, I've been racking my brain all week on this. Like, Lord. Like, Lord, I don't, I don't, I don't want to stand before him and go, man, you know, you were just another check mark. You were just, man, you were, you were just another thing in my life, another 
checkbox that I had to get done on a Monday. You know, could it be that, could it be that the church, um, could it be that the church is, you know, you read the statistics, you hear all this stuff, right? Could it be that that's all true, not because of well, the church doesn't do good marketing or the church doesn't have great preaching or, you know, whatever. We're not following the newest trends of how you reach people. Could it be that the people of God just haven't made him the priority in their life? Like, I just think, you know, the best form of advertising, you know what it is still today, even with social media and all the stuff, and it's still word of mouth. But I would go a step further I would go a step further. I think it's word of mouth, but, but I think it's even further. I think it's the imprint of what your life leaves in your workplace, in your home, on the ball field, in the choir room, the orchestra room, wherever it is that you live, work, and play. We can say that God is the priority in my life, and yet we can live in a way that says that he is only a bullet point in our life. So, I want you to think about that. I want you to consider, is God the priority in your life? Is he the sheet of paper or is he a bullet point? And then I want you to take a step further and I want you to ask yourself, does my life reveal the truth of what I'm proclaiming? Does my life, the way that I live my life, the practices that I have in my life, the rhythms that I have in my life, do they show up in a way that if somebody, somebody looked at your life, a 360 perspective of your life, they would say, man, Johnny, boy, he loves the Lord and that is the priority in his life. Because I'll tell you, I love you, but showing up to church two weeks out of the month ain't going to do it. I, I love you, but you're just punting with your kids. <laughs> because you know what you're teaching them? You're teaching them when they go to college that the church doesn't matter. And then we're all going to sit in a room and we're going to lament on, man, the church is dying and young people don't want to go to church. You want to know why they don't go to church? Because you didn't go to church. Hear me. We say the young generation doesn't give. They don't give because they didn't see you giving. They didn't see us giving. They don't sacrifice because they didn't see you sacrificing. The church has a significant problem and the problem is, is that God is a priority in our life. He's not the priority in our life. And that's not out there, that's in here. Look at our marriages. If God was the prior priority in our life, our marriages wouldn't look the same as the secular culture. Our debt wouldn't look the same as the secular culture. Did you know right now that we're a trillion dollars in credit card debt as a country? And I bet if you stacked us up Christians with unchristians, I bet it's the same. You wanna know why? Because God's not the priority. Because instead of being willing to sacrifice for the Lord and say, God, I'm going to pursue you and I'm going, to, I'm going to pursue you with my time, my talent, my treasure. I'm going to fast. I'm going to place, place, place prayer in the center of my life. We punt for comfort, 
for whatever that is. And I'm telling you, we will not grow as a church if that's the narrative of First Baptist Belton. We won't. It won't matter if we build a new church or if we stay here. If he's not the priority, then forget about it. And so here's what we're going to do. Over the next 15 days, Matt Hollingsworth, our spiritual formation pastor, did an amazing job. He put together this. It's a, it's a 15-day prayer and fasting guide. 15 days. I'm calling us as a church to pray and fast that God would be the priority in our lives. You might say, man, Logan, I don't got time for that. Oh, you don't have time not to do it. You don't have time not to do it. Listen, this is a journey that I want to call us to. I want us to all take hold of this and say over the next 15 days, God, we're going to make you the priority. And my prayer is, is that on the other side of the 15 days, we'll keep running. We'll keep running because God's going to do something amazing in and through us, okay? So here's what this guide will do. It's got a great introduction. Matt did a wonderful job with this. He talks about what fasting is. I don't have to get all practical today because he did it for me. Thank you, Matt. So, so here's how you do it. Here's what you do, right? In the Bible, almost always it's fasting from food. Why? Because we desperately need food to survive. Anybody ever been hangry? I'm hangry all the time, right? I need food, doggone it. So I'm going to fast from food. I'm not telling you that's what you need to do. There's some other options here too, right? What you need to fast from is anything that you run, that you run to something else outside of God for your comfort, approval, your power, or your authority. Whatever it is that you're running to that's not God, I want you to fast from that. I want you to fast from that. For me right now, it's comfort. I don't know why, but man, I'm just, there's a lot going on in life, right? I just want to rest. So we come, I just want to stop for a minute, right? So I'm going to, I'm going to fast from something that I find comfort in. So I'm challenging you to do that for the next 15 days. That's what we're going to do. There's prayer. There's daily devotionals. I'm going to be doing it. Jordan's going to be doing it. Our staff's going to be doing it. And so, hey, we're going to enter into this journey together, and we're going to ask God to show up in a mighty way. And I want change. Listen, y'all, I, 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 don't, I don't want us to stay the same. If we stay, the definition of insanity is doing the same things over and over and over again and seeing no change. (laughs) I don't want to do something insane. I want to ask God to transform our hearts, to transform your heart, my heart, my family's heart, my neighborhood's heart, our community's heart. And I can't do it by myself. Our staff can't do it by myself. And the 30% that are doing it right now can't do it by themselves. We need everybody. Everybody. So the expectation here, we're going to do it together. I'll be praying for you as we seek the Lord and see him do something amazing. Remember, the hand of the Lord is on those who seek him. On those who seek him. We're going to seek him over the next 15 days. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his grace. Thank you, Lord, that we need him more than we need anything else. God, help that to be true and not just something that we proclaim, but it is true of our lives and of our hearts. Reorient us around you, Lord. Over the next 15 days, Lord, reorient our lives around you. Make you the priority in our lives. 
God, I want to be a strong, healthy, vibrant church, Lord, that the enemy is constantly angry with and upset with and throwing his hands up because he can't stop us. Lord, I don't want, I don't want us to go limping into the kingdom, man. I want us to go fighting into the kingdom. And we fight on our knees. We fight through fasting. We fight through prayer. We fight through studying your word. We fight not with fists, but with seeking you. God, I claim your promise this morning that as we seek you, all of these things will be added to us. Lord, I pray that you would be the priority, the sheet of paper in which we prioritize our life. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.